0: Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in.
1: I always give the example of sweet and sour, the mix of those emotions, a little negative and a little positive, a little sweetness and a little sourness. Believe it or not, that is the design of life. You had happiness in you. It's innate. And then we run out of it because we get conditioned to chase another goal. Life passes very quickly when you're not in your own awareness. If you spent two hours swiping on Instagram, that it didn't feel like two hours. Because the only moments you feel alive are the moments where you are aware of you.
0: Welcome to the Elevate podcast, a series designed to explore teachings, ideas and thoughts on empowering young girls while celebrating difference. I'm Ramita Anand, your host, teacher, and educational mentor, and I'll be chatting with insightful activists, thought leaders, creatives, and all-round brilliant champions for girls. Through these conversations and my work at Elevate RA Mentoring Services, I hope we can join forces to foster meaningful connections in order to alter the narrative around what being different, especially for young girls, signifies. He's made many dents in the world and shaken things up for us with his analytical engineering mind. For me personally, however, and possibly many others, his greatest impact was when he began his work to create a mathematical equation for happiness. A trained engineer, he began his career at IBM and joined Google in 2007 to start its business in emerging markets. In 2013, he moved to Google's innovation arm, Google X. As Chief Business Officer at Google X, my guest changed things for the better in the modern world we live in today, in so many ways. Whether that be to get carbon fiber kites to serve as airborne wind turbines or balloons to carry telecom technology into the stratosphere to provide internet service to everyone, these moonshots, as they are called, are instrumental in shaping our lives. These achievements brought him much deserved recognition and reward financially. Yes, however, it was the sudden and tragic loss of his beloved 21-year-old son, Ali, in a routine operation for an appendix removal that went horribly wrong, which altered his life in ways none of us might be able to comprehend. In the midst of his grief for the tragic loss of his dear son, my guest tested his developed algorithm. This would see him change the direction of his life's pursuits as a tribute to his son and work to help others solve for happiness. Drawing on his engineering and mathematics, he has worked to understand and bust some of the myths of the modern world that are currently associated with happiness and speaks to engineering our minds to find true happiness. It was in the course of his grieving that he decided to work with his mind, changing its thought patterns from the very tragic fact that his son, Ali, died but also focusing on the fact that he also lived. Using very powerful thought pattern changes such as this, he articulates the full process to his happiness equation in the international bestseller book, Solve for Happy, Engineer Your Path to Joy. Many of you may also be accustomed to listening to his soothing voice and comforting messages through his own podcast series, Slow Mo, on which he invites others to share their own journeys and experiences of joy and happiness. I was overjoyed with excitement when our most generous and giving guest today agreed to come onto the Elevate podcast to speak with our listeners about happiness. In a time of young people's development, which is already full of so much chaos and uncertainty, this last year can only have compounded their sense of confusion and worry. It is my utmost pleasure to be introducing the one, the only, the greatest and wisest Mo Gaudat to share how we can lift our youth together and spread awareness on the positives that are so important to hold on to. Hello and welcome Mo.
1: Hi this is A lot of pressure that introduction. (laughs) I I I hope I can live up to this. I'll I'll try my absolute best. Thank you so much for your generous words.
0: Well, they're absolutely true, and it's an honor and a privilege uh, for me to have you here today. I almost need to pinch myself, as you know, about this being a real moment. As I have been such a fan of everything you say, and I'm just ecstatic to be able to share it with our listeners. I actually, you know, when I was thinking about all my questions, I thought, where do I begin? I have so much to ask and there's so much to cover, but like all good things, even our time together is limited, so I'll get straight into it and begin by asking you a little bit about your background and your family upbringing, if if that's okay. You have a Middle Eastern heritage and you grew up in Egypt, your mum, a professor of English literature, and your father, a civil engineer, who emphasised the importance of education, as many parents do, but also more uniquely, the importance of travel to help ensure your success in the future. I'm so moved by this. Can you talk us a little bit about your travels and adventures? I must
1: have been... One of the luck, I'm probably one of the luckiest people I know. I, uh, you know, I had that incredible mix, which normally is not the case. Actually, my father uh, was very much the heart of the family. My mother was the academic, organized side, uh, of course, loving and wonderful, but she emphasized academic achievement, performance. Uh, my dad was a, an engineer, so he emphasized being in the field. I also have that interesting. Uh, uh, you know, balance between East and West, which I think really influenced me, especially as I grew older and I started to think about how, um, you know, being brought up in an Eastern uh, background sort of builds something in you uh, that is a little different than all of the bombardment that we get from the Western culture. But then I was educated in, you know, in a Western uh, um, um, approach to education. And then I was uh, I worked most of my life uh, in uh, corporate America and then in my own startups in the in Europe and so on and so that mix actually gave me a very uh unusual view of life because if you're so exposed to such diverse views of life, you start to question both of them. You start to tell yourself is is you know is the Western approach to individuality the right way to go through life, or is the Eastern approach to community an interesting way? Are they always valid? You know, uh, the, the West, you know, emphasizes freedom, while the East emphasizes uh, sort of uh, respect. If you want, I think is probably the highest value. And you know, are those, you know, is one of them needed, but not the other? Can you combine them? And perhaps what really brought me into that at the beginning was my dad's approach, which. Was very unusual. He he. We we were not a very rich family, but my dad uh, saved uh, almost every year uh, to make sure that myself and my brothers would spend a month uh, outside Egypt uh, in summer every year. And I, you know, at the beginning, he would send me to friends and family, uh, but then very quickly, I would be, have to work to my to make my uh, trip, which he considered education, uh, to make my trip happen and. And that made a massive difference because here I am, this Egyptian, you know, teenager. Uh, first time I traveled, I actually didn't speak English at all, and I learned my English uh, in Philadelphia when I visited my wonderful uncle, who's still one of my favorite people on the planet. Uh, then, you know, I I uh, I had to learn. I had a, I knew a bit of German when I started to travel to Germany because he had. Uh, you know business connections in Germany that you know allowed me to get internships and so on Um, you know I had to refine my German and start to actually at the time I used to speak really reasonably fluently but it wasn't just languages it was the observation of how, how different cultures do different things you know I come from Egypt and we have our way and then I go there and it's a very different way and that humbleness if you want to say hey you know, instead of becoming super patriotic, it's like, we know everything, they're wrong. You start to, which a lot of people get into that trap. You start to tell yourself, we know nothing and they know nothing too. You know, it's it's an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, and it
0: gives you a really nice balanced approach to things, I think. You can take what resonates most with you from different parts and that's really great. And as I can hear it in your voice, that the travel part, as you mentioned in your book, was really wonderful. However, the more success you achieve professionally, the more financial gains you made through your education or through opportunities of work, which were plenty, you still struggled to find happiness as a young man. Despite all the accolades that you so rightfully earned through your work, the freedoms of the income you know, even enabled you to splurge on luxuries. I love reading about the fact that you were able to even own two vintage Rolls Royces, but that these were only in some way trying to fill a hole in your soul, as you say even as a young man you used to use your software developer hat to target finding a code that could be applied to predict uh, predictively deliver happiness Um, and you actually found that it was through a casual conversation with your mum that gave you your first breakthrough and i i love the proverb that you mention about eat frugally for a year dress frugally for another and you'll find happiness forever and i wondered if you would Sort of expand on that because I love what you say when you question. Maybe this came from the traveling that you question this a little bit with your mom and you say to her, "Well, I stuck to my side of the bargain. I did, as you say, but I, I don't feel happiness right now." What happened in that moment for you to have a breakthrough?
1: Yeah, it's it's, it's really an, an an interesting moment because so 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 you have to imagine most of us are very very happy until we really engage in life, right? So until age twenty five, I was the happiest person uh, you could meet. You know, I had my wonderful, wonderful college sweetheart became my wife, gave me two wonderful children. Everything was fine, uh, you know, until life, when when my kids, uh, you know, joined our life, uh, you know, when I started to get serious about life, serious about making money, serious about uh, providing for them, serious about, you know, the quality of what I provided and so on. Before that, you know, I was happy-go-lucky. Life was, uh, you know, not always providing and I was fine with it. Uh, the, The trick, however, is that you um, sort of have that belief, which my mom was right, and the proverb was right, if she had replaced the word happy with the word successful forever, right? So if you, if you worked really hard and was frugal for a while, didn't spend all your money you know, stupidly uh, and, and invested or saved or whatever it is that you know, you're told in, in business magazines to do, you would achieve success. But I think the missing link is that we are are taught somehow in a highly capitalistic uh, world that when you achieve success, happiness will be the the reasonable outcome, right? And, And the truth is, it isn't. It isn't at all. As a matter of fact, you look around you and you count the number of billionaires who are swimming in money and success and fame and love by their fans who commit suicide. It's obviously not a one-to-one relationship, you know. And and also you go to Latin America or to you know some of the poorest parts of Africa and you see people who have nothing at all, who live day to day, hand to mouth, and, and are happy as you know, you can be. And, and and that debate in my head was like, Okay, so I kept my side of the bargain. What is wrong with the equation that my mom told me? Is it true that you know uh, working hard and and being diligent uh, leads to happiness no it doesn't seem to okay it does seem it does lead to success but success does not lead to happiness and i think yeah i think that really was a massive eye-opener for me at the time of my life where i was all about success right? where i was all about working hard
0: which leads me to the next point and it's quite a common one that many of us hold the idea that to chase happiness or the way to happiness is through the notion that as soon as I do this, as soon as I get that, I reach that goal, I'll become happy. It's extremely interesting, isn't it? And I think it starts so Mm -hmm. young. We start showing our children from such a young age how happy it makes us when they do this, achieve that, make this team, score that mark, gain acceptance to such and such school or that university that I wonder if it becomes such a vicious cycle that even as adults, we can't break it. I wonder if you shed some light on this for us.
1: We we can break it, but we have to break through that conditionality. Uh, it's it's so interesting. So that's that's by the way, um, sometimes worse worse in the east than it is in the west. Especially if you go to Indian cultures or Chinese cultures or you know Korean Japanese cultures, where it's all about you know work really hard, score an A. Uh, you know, if you're in in second grade, that means you need to work 12-hour days to, you know, it's like, seriously, what, what does that mean? And, and that conditioning, that conditioning that we get into uh, uh, makes us believe that uh, life is about uh, work. Uh, we, even, we even, funny enough to me, we even try to find our life's purpose in work. We try to define ourselves by our work. We, we, You know, if you ask someone, so tell me about you, most people will start by saying, I am this and that, a title on their business card. And that's so stupid because as, as a matter of fact, if you remember the happiest times of your life, you owned nothing at all and you identified as nothing at all. When you were a child, you know, you ran around and played and, you know, had no worries in your head about anything and you were fine. And you had pure happiness in you. You Even when you were an infant, you lay on your back and if you were fed, if you were safe, if you were given your basic needs, really just the basic needs of survival, your state was happy. Now that really starts to tell you, is happiness a goal to be reached? Is this something, when you really, really visualize it, huh? You had happiness in you. It's innate. It's our default setting. It's our our optimum mode of survival. Just like being healthy is our mode of survival, being happy is what we're born as. And then we run out of it. We we run out of it because we get conditioned in school and by our parents that we we have to chase another goal. right? And, And we start to chase the other goal. We become successful at it. We become less happy. And so what do they tell us? Yeah, 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 there is a remedy for that. There is a remedy for that. You know, work harder, you'll be more successful. You'll be more financially, uh, uh, you know, uh, independent. And then you can buy stuff, buy things that will make you happy. And when was the last time that anything Ever made you happy for more than a few minutes? Yeah, well, right? yeah, that's
0: huge. Yeah. That's yeah, that's... And,
1: and then you run out of that happiness, and so you chase another thing and another thing. When was the last time a party made you happy for a week? You know, you may be feel, you may think you're happy in the party, but you wake up the next morning and you feel horrible.
0: Right. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. In exactly what you just said about social conditioning, I want to talk a little bit more about young folks because they're so impressionable. They are quite mesmerized by the abundance of role models. And particularly today, these role models are sort of available on a much more uh, sort of at your fingertips level, aren't they, with, with social media and your devices. They surround them, whether they are pop stars, they're footballers, they're influencers, but all of these role models in some way are surrounded by a certain amount of wealth which too many is the point that you just touched on. The wealth might be the definition of success, that you made it, if you like, or a way of measuring something. However, as you mentioned in the 90s rap song, Mo Money More Problems, it's a much more accurate truth. And I wonder if you could expand on this and offer any thoughts for parents or ways for teachers or ways for adults of young teens who are seeking this type of success, because, these kids believe, through their own impressionable lens, that this is what happiness is.
1: Yeah, my, my, my one of my favorite authors of all time, of course, and of many, is, is Eckhart Tolle. Huh? And Eckhart Tolle basic, basically saw, says, "Don't blame them. Huh? Your parents, the way they taught you, uh, be, you know, made you a victim, if you want, to the conditioning of the modern world." And he he says. He says you are a victim. That is the son of or a daughter of a victim. Who is the son of a daughter of a or a, of a victim, right? And and the way I normally trace it is, I say most of our conditioning uh, is 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 in an attempt to achieve the insurance policy, right? People that went through the Great Depression or people actually going now through COVID nineteen and the lockdowns and the economic uh, you know difficulties those people will be conditioned in a way that will say, look, the one thing that matters most is for me to have money in the bank, to feel secure, because life is unpredictable. And when you when you when you start to say uh, life is unpredictable, I need to become safe if you want, well, I actually don't think that's the wrong thing. I think the problem is in, in algebra, it's it's not it's not a it's ending, right? You know, if you're a parent today, and you tell yourself, I'm going to teach my children to become successful, Hmm? that's a worthwhile worthwhile goal. You know, that's a good thing to teach your children. But but then use what I normally call the SWAP test. And the SWAP test is to ask yourself, okay, so there is something called success and another thing called happiness. If I uh, view my children, you know, in their 20s, and I can picture them to be, successful but not happy or happy but not successful okay uh which one would i want hmm? if if they had if they had um uh, uh, you know a moderate amount of wealth not wealth but uh, enough to live hmm? but they're not superstars and they're not you know a students and but but they have a, a good life and they're happy hmm? Would you prefer that for them than if they had very limited amounts of happiness, but they had all of the wealth in the world. Which choice do you want, right? And by swapping those two, you would realize that you actually, most parents, most loving parents will not want their children to be unhappy. They want their children to be happy first and foremost. Hmm? And 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 they want them to be successful to lead to that happiness, to lead to that safety, to lead to an environment where where they're living a, a reasonably good life. Hmm? And if you realize that, then you suddenly realize that your target as a parent has been misstated for you. If you make your children successful but miserable, you failed. okay? The right, the right answer for a parent is to say, it's and, it's not either or, it shouldn't be successful or happy, which is really the big lie that leads to a lot of misery, which is happiness is a tax, unhappiness is a tax you have to pay. Uh, to to, to find your path to to success. No, the trick is we can do better than this as humans. We can be successful and happy at the same time, right? And if we teach our kids that happiness is as important as success and that a balance between them makes you go further in life, you know, then we've set the right targets as parents. And I will tell you, I mean, in reality is I've had a career that most people would envy me for, right? I you know my, in, at, at the end of my Google career, I was chief business officer of Google X. You know, Google was very generous to me financially. I had to work, I worked with the most, you know, brightest and most interesting people I could ever think of. And it was a fun job. And I got, I got to that job not because I was a grumpy, annoying, control freakish, uh, you know, a, a, a success obsessed person, but because I actually was fun to work with. I was enjoying my work. I, I inspired people with my happiness. And that's why people wanted to work with me in jobs like that. And and when you think about it, can you can you teach your children to be that? To be not only the people that have money in the bank, but everyone hates them. Okay, that have a title of a boss and everyone thinks they're idiots? Or do you want them to actually be those people that everyone aspires to, who also are successful and have reasonable amounts of money in the bank and a a good career in life?
0: That's so profound and such a good reminder. So the idea that your happiness allows you to shape your work, to shape your day-to-day interactions with people, and that allows the success or the promotions at work or the, you know, the greater joys that you can get through your professional life as well, which is so important. And I think a great reminder for all of us, you know, we're all navigating this world. And I know you said earlier, and I'm just going to touch on it briefly, because you said something about, you know, until the greatest responsibilities fall on you, which is to provide for others, you were generally a happy person. And that might be specific for you. Or do you think that's a general thing? Because I'm finding the more and more I'm working with the young people of today, the word anxiety and depression and unhappiness things associated with being unhappy seem to be a bigger problem even when they don't have these responsibilities of providing for other people because they're only young folks themselves and you touched a little bit about you know wearing a mask and hiding behind this mask and you know obviously not right now in this current climate we're all literally wearing masks i know that um, but in a figurative context we put on these fronts and we pretend to be something we are not i wonder what you think about this as a again a result of of society's expectations of us or is it to do with our egos what is it that we can do to try and help young people let go of this worry of how other people well, the perception and what other social conditioning is moving them forward to try and pursue this level of happiness. That's deeply, I think, having the reverse effect and taking them down into a, yeah. a level of unhappiness that they can't even cope with.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, at, at, the, at the top level, my work on the happiness equation is basically very straightforward. If you're feeling unhappy, it's because life is missing your expectations. There's not a there's never been a single event in life that made everyone happy equally. There has never been a single event in your own life that made you that made you equally happy every time it happens. Huh? Rain sometimes makes you happy if you want to water a plant. It may sometimes make you unhappy if you want a sun pan, right? And it's, it's as simple as that. Some, some people love rain and some people love snow and some people love sunshine. And it's as simple as that. So the event in itself has no inherent value of happiness. It's a comparison that happens in our brains, where we say, I want snow, but it didn't snow. For me, I would be dancing because I don't like snow. But for some other people who want to ski, they'll go like, oh my God, life is so unfair. Now, with that in mind, you have to understand that, yes, for me, my expectations from life being a person who fears disappointing those who count on him, was I needed to make sure that I will always provide for my kids and provide for my kids better than any other father can provide for his kids. Now that fear when missed would lead me to stress. okay For others, for others, you know, like teenagers today or young generations in general today, that there is a need to fit in. I need to be accepted, by everyone. And by the way, that's nothing new. When I was young, I needed to fit in too, but my circle was 12 people, right? So it was actually manageable to fit in with 12 people. They now have to fit in with a, a circle of 150 friends on Facebook or you know, Instagram and you know and, and and thousands of others that are looking at them all the time that they don't even know right? And the opinion of everyone counts now. And and so what what do you do? You stretch yourself into trying to appear to be what they want you to be, okay? And what they want you to be is not really you, so it's uncomfortable for you, right? But at the same time, they don't care anyway. They just want to be annoying. Some of them are so occupied by themselves that it's actually easier for them to feel good about themselves by making others feel bad about themselves. You know how it is, huh? If I tell others they're ugly, then that means I'm pretty in, in relative views, okay? Uh, and, and, and so it is a vicious circle. It's never going to be satisfied. And, and, and it's that cycle of, so what do I actually need? Hmm? Can I be happy? And, and if you, you know, age... Uh, as as much as it makes us boring it also gives us experience so the reality the reality is after a while you start to realize two facts one is you actually never fit in never right because by definition i mean if you go on a dating site you would realize that fact you know bright as the sun some people like tall uh, uh, partners others like short partners some people like curvy partners others like skinny partners, right? And, 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 and it's endless. Huh? Some people like this skin tone, others like that skin tone. And so by definition, if, you, if you're tall and you appeal to those who like tall, by definition, you don't appeal to those who like average or short, okay? And so, you know, if, you, if you're curvy and you appeal to those who are curvy, that by definition means you don't appeal to those who like skinny. And so the reality, the, the mathematical uh, ambition of appealing to everyone is simply an mathematical impossibility. Now, so you're chasing an impossible target. What do you expect will happen? Your life will always miss your expectations and your happiness equation will be broken. Happiness is equal to or greater than the difference between the event of your life and your expectation of how life should be. If you expect that everyone will think, uh, you know, you're funny, hmm, you're by definition going to fall short because your type of humor is liked by 20%, which by definition means 80% don't like it. So you're constantly going to be you know uh demotivated, you're constantly constantly going to be disappointed.
0: Yeah, of course. And that's a really important way to address this. And I think it's an inherent worry that we, especially girls, young girls, seem to carry with them. And I think the way you explained it might help normalize it within our society. I think It's very poignant for you to say that and really important. And I know you just touched on the actual happiness equation, which is what I was going to say. We haven't actually even come on to that, the golden nugget that we're all awaiting. I'm sure all my listeners are excited about this part. And there's a whole book on it, of course, which explains it in detail. And I urge everyone to buy and read it without doing 10 years of, well, more than 10 years of hard research, any disservice. I would wonder if you could just give us a simplistic takeaway about how young parents or parents of young teens might be able to apply this equation in their day-to-day life if there were any quick sort of messages for them that you might want to share
1: so let's understand definitions first hmm? the definitions of of happiness and unhappiness because believe it or not as an engineer this is where I struggled very much when I couldn't feel happy I was like so yeah I'm going to search for that happiness thing but what is that happiness thing right and 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 the definition is very straightforward if if happiness is the times in your life where life meets your expectations which where, where the event that you're up against or up you know or, or enjoying is equal to what you want life to be hmm? so events minus expectations is equal to 0 or uh, or positive hmm? then happiness in that definition is not going to a party it's not going to it's not buying expensive things it's not Uh, all of the, uh, uh, you know, um, modern world's replacement of happiness. Happiness in that definition is life meets my expectations, which means I'm okay with life as it is. I'm okay with life as it is that contentment, that peace is what we term as happy, okay? You can add fun to that. You can add elated, you can add excited, you can add, you know, laughing out loud. All of these are additional emotions, hmm? that happen on top of that baseline of I am okay with life as it is, right? Now, when you think about those def- that definition of happiness, something very different happens because our way of raising children hmm, is through the Western approach of self-esteem, okay? Self-esteem is you should feel good about yourself because you've done better than others, Right? And as long as you haven't done better than others, then you shouldn't feel good about yourself. That is the absolute worst Western uh, uh, exported uh, notion that really completely is, uh, is the way we, we raise children around the world. Now. The truth is you should feel good about yourself regardless if you have done the best that you can why because as my children you know when when they were growing up if my son would score an a in mathematics i would you know i think that was reasonable he was good in mathematics if he would score a, a c in geography i'd say that's absolutely amazing that's great you don't like geography right and that's fine right and that's absolutely fine you don't have to be an amazing god at everything right and and so 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 let's go back to the to the definitions huh Happiness is that uh, peaceful contentment you feel when you're okay with life as it is. That hmm, is actually exactly the biological signature of happiness because when you're happy, you get serotonin, a hormone that comes into your body that is a calmer. Okay, that hormone has one task, which is to tell your physical form, your biology, it seems to be safe. It seems to be okay here. You can now rest, replenish your muscles. Digest your food, close your eyes. This is a good time for you to do that other part of being a biological machine that is so needed for your life to be good. Okay. Serotonin happens when you're okay with life as it is, when you're okay with this current moment. Happiness, on the other hand, by the definition of the modern world, which is fun, excitement, uh, you know, uh, uh, parties, uh, uh, extreme sports, or whatever that is. That actually is driven by the hormone dopamine, and dopamine is an excitatory. It is a it's a it's a reward hormone that is filling your body to tell you, "I want you to do more of what you're currently doing. This is this this feels good. I want more of it. I, you know, they said they said you're amazing. Do it again. Post another post, and you'll get another shot of dopamine. That's my reward for you, right now. Dopamine. What dopamine does as an excitatory is it takes takes serotonin out of your bloodstream. It's basically, uh, you can't have an excitatory and a calmer at the same time. So the more you get addicted to that idea of, I need that shot of reward hormone, then the harder it becomes to actually be happy, to find that contentment from which you should start your life, right? That contentment of, here I am, I'm okay, I can go on from here and be better and better and better, but I'm not bad as I am. Right? Now, when when you when you think about the difference between those two, you realize that the biggest challenge we have in life hmm, is that we will never content. We're never content with where we are. We're constantly chasing the next thing, and what happens is you achieve the next thing, and with that, where you end up, hmm, you say you achieve it for a second. Then you say that's great. So what's next? Where is where is the next target? How can I keep moving forward? And that's constant unhappiness constant break of the happiness equation
0: right yeah okay I, I understand so positive thinking is obviously part of this as well right i'm hoping i'm on the right track here
1: so so uh, so good 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 parents good parents should basically acknowledge how amazing their children <laughs> yes. are. yes
0: okay yes
1: right and instead of instead of just focusing on the things that are going bad they should simply say oh my god You are so wonderfully emotional. You're so empathetic to others, right? I love that about you. And I also realize that you're not a mass genius. I forgive you completely. I just want you to pass through mass because it's important for school. But by the way, I've noticed you're very good with instruments. I really want you to excel at that, okay? Not because, because, you know, every child has to excel at playing the violin or playing the guitar, but because you, you have it in you to be good at that. So invest in that and be happy about it.
0: Okay, right. That takes me on then to the next question about positive thoughts versus emotions that you just mentioned. Like you and many others, I also experienced extreme grief and unexpected events in my life, like lots of young people possibly do in their day-to-day. But when you get to the emotions that overcome you at times of extreme sadness, like your case and in mine, that the emotion of grief They're hard to undo by just the power of positive or retrospective thinking. The idea that hindsight shows us that challenges we face are the things that shape us. Yes, of course, but there are also moments that you can't but help wishing that this type of adversity never faced anyone. Why should I personally lose my mum at the age of 13 or you lose your son when he was only 21? How do you come to terms or rationalize these thoughts when they do come to you?
1: Hmm. Well, that uh, I will say is the Jedi Master level of happiness. Uh, it's it's an understanding of life that goes beyond the day to day. So so let's let's start from the word emotions because again, part of the Western exported, uh, actually all over the world now, the idea that emotions are bad for you. Okay emotions by the way are the only time when we feel alive okay uh ima- imagine a day where you woke up in the morning and you felt nothing right would that would that day feel like a day of living huh? if, if if you if you woke up in the morning and didn't have a little bit of an urge to change something or an anger at an un- uh, unjust cause in life or you know a, a, a desire be with someone and a love for your parents or whatever that is, whatever those emotions are, this is what makes us alive. Now, because we have built after the Industrial Revolution, a society that wants us to be predictable, to be gears and machines. We were told not to feel emotions so that we avoid showing emotions, which are somehow unpredictable in the machine of capitalism because if you're a little emotional today you might not be as effective at doing your job as an accountant as you would if you were just a a heartless emotionless human now if your task is to be a very good accountant in life and have no emotions good luck with that right Uh, but if your if your task is to be human and fully feel like a human Then acknowledge your emotions and not only acknowledge them, embrace them, embrace them fully, love them, savor them, even if they are negative. Okay. I always give the example of sweet and sour. You know, in Chinese cuisine, you don't like sweet and sour only because of the sweet. You like it because of the sweet and sour, right? And you may tell yourself, but sour on its own is sometimes not that nice to have hmm? it's one it's been one of the largest growing candy categories in the world for years which is sour candy It's sweet and sour the mix of those emotions a little negative and a little positive a little sweetness and a little sourness believe it or not hmm? that is the design of life. Now I compare life to video games. Yes, hmm?
0: yes you do. <laughs> and, and in,
1: yeah, and in video, and in video games, uh, if, if, if life becomes difficult in the video game, if the enemy is attacking you a little more uh, uh, aggressively at a section of the game, you don't put your controller down and say, come on, that's not what I paid for. As a matter of fact, you hold on stronger to your controller and you go like, this is the time where I have fun. This is the time where I enjoy the game more. This is the time where I become a better gamer. Now, with that understanding, I will say the following. There is a a flow chart from the point you feel an emotion to the point you reach happiness that is highly predictable and works every single time. Embrace your emotion fully, but then ask yourself, what is triggering that emotion? Believe it or not, 95% of the time what's triggering the emotion is a lie. Okay, it's not the truth that actually happened. Huh? Your 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 uh, 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 teacher uh, pushes you in school, mm, and you go like, uh, "She hates me." No, no, no. The event is you did not submit your network, your, your homework, uh, so she's pushing you to submit your homework. That's the event. Okay, "He hates me" is a brain generated thought that is trying to make sense of life. Huh? Your 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 boyfriend is a little late. You go like, okay, he doesn't care about me anymore. No, if stuck in traffic doesn't mean he doesn't care about me anymore, right? Now, when you, when you think about the, the, the difference between the thought hmm, and the actual event, you need to ask yourself the first question. And the first question is, is that true? Is that true, brain? What you're telling me now, is that true? Should I feel unhappy about it? Right. You know, um, I I have an argument with my wonderful daughter, who's the love of my life, really. And, you know, she loves me dearly. I know that because she gives me a lot of signs and signals, you know, between messages and calls and gifts and time together. And right, I know she loves me, but we had an argument. And so I leave her apartment. And the first thought that my brain tells me is, I doesn't love you anymore. Where the hell did you get that from, right? where? How can you give yourself the right to make me miserable on something that is not true okay is this true is the first question to happiness if it isn't true drop it doesn't you know you shouldn't feel unhappy for a second about something that is not true right number 2 is what if it is true okay you know what if actually aya is very upset with me that is a reasonable thought to have because sometimes she is yes aya is not is very upset with me what can i do about it that's question number 2 what can I do about it? Should I sit in a corner and cry for the next two hours? Will that solve anything? Will that make her not upset with me? Will that make my life better? Will that make you know make me a a, a good father? Why? Why do we put ourselves in corners and cry over and over and over. A week later, I would say, she's still upset with me. And then two weeks later, I would say, she's upset with me because I'm the worst father on earth. And then uh, uh, 75 years later, I say, she's never visited me because she was upset with me 75 years ago. How stupid is that, right? If question number two is, is there something I can do about it, about the event that is facing me? And if, if there is, do it. Do it and we're done do it and life becomes better and you don't feel upset anymore you don't feel unhappy anymore and then the third question is the situations you and i have gone through and you know yeah of course my son ali dies and it's you know there is a finality to death there is a finality to many things in life by the way you you hit your car and you know it's 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 beyond repair or you lo- you drop twenty pounds and you or twenty dollars and you never find them again, or your phone breaks. There is a finality to life. Okay, there are things that happen, and they happen. And the question you ask yourself in the situations where you can't fix them is, okay, can I live with it and make my life better despite its presence? Okay, so so let's not reuse the 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 most painfully experience of lo- losing a loved one. Hmm? You left your phone somewhere and your phone is lost. That's it. You go back. The first question is you ask yourself, is it true? Is it lost? No, no, it's not true. Actually, there is something I can do about it. You go back, search for it. It's not there anymore, right? So now you're stuck in a situation where your phone is lost. You can choose to sit in the corner of the place where you lost it and cry for seven hours. It's not going to bring it back, right? But you can also choose and tell yourself, in that case, what can I do? Now that I've realized I've lost my phone, that makes my life better. I'm going to call the telco, right, heartlessly, without, without, you know, being devastated about it and say, can you please cancel my SIM so that no one, you know, uh, uh, makes international calls on my phone. And then I'm going to look through my financials and see how I'm going to get another phone. And if I can't get another phone, I will wait until I get another phone. I'll tell my friends I'm not available. Uh, sorry, if you text me, I'll find a way. I'll... You know, and, and with that, life continues. It's not the best, by the way. It doesn't bring the phone back. Huh? Nothing I could ever do could bring my son back. Now, and that realization is really important. Huh? Ali dies due to, a, you know, a silly medical error in a very simple medical operation. Hmm? And Yeah, I can, I can blame the doctor. I can, you know, blame myself for taking him to that hospital. I can blame life itself. I can blame God if you believe there is a God. You know, whatever you want. You can do anything you want. It's not going to bring him back. So what do you do? You say, you say he's gone. Can I do something that make my life better despite his absence? Yes. I can write a book about what he taught me about happiness. I can share that message with millions of tens of millions of people. It doesn't still bring him back, but it makes my life better despite his absence. It makes, it makes it not for nothing that he left. And I think, when you start to see life that way, you start you start to become the real gamer, the real gamer where life hits you because that's the design of the game. You fall and then you get up and say, "Okay, that was difficult. What can I do now? What can I do now?
0: How can I continue with the game?" Oh, Mo, no, that's left me with goosebumps. I'm I'm welling up with emotion as I always do whenever I hear you speak on this. It's such. A profound messaging and it's so important. And I think you speak to the superpower of resilience, you know, yes, the game knocked you. Yes, you fell, but you're going to get up again. You know, we fall seven, seven times, we get up eight. It sort of continues. But I think, again, a lot of this and a lot of the teachings that I think you're so incredibly wonderful at giving us is the relationship we have with our brain because all of these thoughts that you're <laughs> that you're telling us to have these conversations you're asking us to think about the questions you're asking us to have are with this organ this incredible organ that we all have and I know as a teacher that in the most science curriculums we teach kids the makeup of the brain, how it's the powerhouse of our beings and many schools even relay the importance of our brains with growth mindset versus fixed mindset. You know a little bit which you've I think touched on and there's ample data on it however I'm so interested in this Mo Gaudat a fascinating spin that you put on to the way we have our relationship with our brain and I use it all the time without fail and it doesn't cease to amaze me you explain in your book that there are different stages of inspection with the brain that our tendencies of brain is to criticize judge complain and how we can convince ourselves about the truth, right? And we make predictions, just like you said. But I wonder for our listeners if you wouldn't mind giving us some of the ways that you befriend your brain.
1: <laughs> I, I I don't know if I befriend my brain or I'm the boss of my brain. I think I'm the latter. I think I think I'm the latter. And so so we need to start from one very simple illusion, okay? Because when you see the truth, life looks very very different Hmm? every one of us has that little voice talking in their head mo uh speed up now because we might be running out of time mo uh you spoke too much on the last comment mo uh you're you know you're bold so don't show your head too much in the camera whatever right there is some and some of us have more than one voice as a matter of fact scientifically all of us have more than one voice uh, you know a, a fast and a slow voice one that is intuitive and one that is analytical now the thoughts that our voice in our head gives us are true for every human being uh, that has ever been studied maybe there is a miracle somewhere where someone has a silent brain uh, but we don't know about that yet the illusion however is a very Western, again, uh, is, is you know, documented in a very Western statement by Descartes, which was, uh, I think, therefore I am. Okay? Uh, yeah. and, and, and that basically is a glorification of that thought process, that little voice in your head, to the point that you equate yourself with that voice. If that voice speaks, it's me, Mo, talking to me. Okay? And, and, and that is a mega illusion and once you see through that illusion everything changes and let me tell you why it's an illusion first from a very simple subject object relationship if it was me talking to me it wouldn't need to talk do you understand that if if this is me talking to me i would know what i want to say why would i have to say it whether out loud or in my brain and this was the 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 uh, uh the the basis of uh, of a lot of analysis in psychology in the 1930s around the, what they call internal dialogue right and the internal dialogue in my own interpretation is when a child stops narrating the world out loud you know how children will point at an airplane and say a plane right now and then there is a point where it becomes awkward so they start to say it inside okay and there is a lot of evidence scientifically that when we're thinking internally, you know, those moments of silence, when you have your uh, hand on your cheek and thinking, that your larynx, right, your, your voice uh, box starts to move ever so slightly, mimicking what you would say, what, would, what you would do when you speak out loud. Uh, MIT actually put people in MRI machines and noticed that when we're thinking, when we're our, in our internal dialogue, the same parts of the brain... Uh, That light up when you speak out loud are the same parts of the brain that light up before you actually make a realization. So if you're solving a problem, your brain will solve the problem first. And then after eight seconds of activation in your up to eight seconds of activation in your speech association area, the same part you use when you speak out loud, you actually become aware of the answer. So your brain finds the answer first and then takes up to eight seconds to turn it into words so that you understand it. Now let me give you my the way I basically position it. The way I position it is this: I have a heart in my body, and the and the, and the biological function of my heart is to pump blood around my head, uh, my body. Right? It's a survival mechanism, really, because without blood being pumped around my body, I wouldn't survive. Now, I never woke up once in my life and said, "I pump blood, therefore I am." Okay, I don't equate myself to the biological product of my heart. Okay. With with all due respect, you know, please don't be offended. I don't define myself as the urine that comes out of my kidneys, right? You know, I you know nobody ever said I piss, therefore I am. It's, it's as simple as that, right? Now, however we somehow say I think, therefore I am. The thinking, thoughts are the biological product of your brain. It's a highly defi- refined product as compared to blood or urine, right? But it's still a biological product. That's the sole function of your brain. Your brain looks at the world around it, analyzes it, and turns it into words inside your head so that you can assess the situation and make decisions. Don't ask me who you are in that case because you are not your physical form in general. Let's. But but that's a big conversation yeah, we should yeah, have. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Another podcast, yeah. Right?
1: Yeah, yeah, but 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 the observer, the person that the the, the entity that is responsible for running that physical form of yours, which you know religions would define as soul or spirit or or your consciousness or whatever you want. I don't want to get into religious uh, conversations, but that entity that dreams without the use of your physical form, that entity that connects across distances to people that you love, that entity that sometimes gets. Uh, deja vus or feels uh, uh, things, um, you know, beyond the physical sensation, that entity is listening to the brain to make decisions. Now, in that case, that entity, the real Mo, the real you, as I call it, hmm, is using the brain as a tool. The brain is one of the tools that keeps this physical vehicle that's called our body alive. Now, if you see it this way, then it's not, I think, therefore I am. It's, I am, therefore my brain thinks, right? And when you see it that way, everything changes. Because if the thoughts in your head are no longer you telling you what to do, then the thoughts in your head are to be doubted, to be inspected, to be rejected. And you can actually tell your brain, what's up, brain? Why do you think I, uh, my daughter doesn't love me? Give me evidence. For the facts that you give me, I don't have to obey anymore. I don't have to even listen. I have the ability to say to my brain, hey, brain, this is not the time to talk about this. Okay. I'm focusing on this podcast now. Can we please not talk about, you know, the fact that my coffee wasn't great in the morning? Because honestly, I don't want to talk about this right now. And so I learned to position my brain as a third party. Okay, I actually call my brain Becky. Yes, okay?
0: yes, I and, do the same, yeah, thanks and to you. I, and, I call,
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, Becky, and Becky Becky was given to me by one of my friends who I in, explained the concept to her and then she basically started to call her friend Becky and I, her brain Becky and I said, why? And she said she was the most annoying <laughs> girl in school. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and when you really think about your brain, this incredible tool huh? could be your absolute best friend only if you told it what to do. Only if you told it, hmm, like the boss that you really are, this is good for me, brain, and this is not. And so I have a simple rule. My brain is allowed to give me a joyful thought or a useful thought. Okay, I don't mind this, the thought not being joyful. Okay, If it's going to lead to a result, if it's useful, I will listen. But if my brain is going to nag unnecessarily or lie through its teeth, I picture a friend in school who would have done this to me and I, I go like, how would I have dealt with Becky? I would have told Becky, stop, don't do this to me or become a little more objective about what you tell me because otherwise it's a waste of my life.
0: Yeah, wow. Uh, and it's it's a powerful tool. And most often actually, whenever I've done this exercise with my students, they always choose the most annoying girl in their class to to choose the name. Uh, or boy, or boy, or boy. Let's yeah. not be let's not no, be sexy. Uh, true, true. I, mean, I, 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 I know
1: I of, I often call it Brian as well, and I won't <laughs> tell you why I think Brian was the most annoying engineer at uh, But anyway. <laughs>
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's great that, you yeah. know I, I it's such a lovely tool it's such a great one i'm so pleased that you were able to to share that there's so much i want to ask you and i'm aware of the time so i'm going to just choose a couple of last questions if that's okay with you there's one thing i want to talk about and that is being aware and having awareness and i feel that it's so vital for our young folks to understand the relationship and what being aware really means. You have a wonderful way of explaining this as well. And I love the way you share why you feel we need greater awareness to grasp the world around us. Having presence, which perhaps many parents feel is impossible to get from their teens, would you help guide them on how we can get our teens to break through the frivolous unhelpful noises to their happiness noise and emerge into a world or a state of being connected and I when I say connected I don't mean to the online world I mean physically connected to us
1: yeah this probably actually in my life today I define this as the golden golden path to happiness to success to everything the idea of awareness hmm, is something that it became more and more rare in a in a highly fast-paced, highly stressful, polluted world with so many signals and so many attempts to grab your attention. And and interestingly, uh, you are always aware. hmm? Uh, There is not a single moment in your life when when you're not aware. It's just what you choose to give your awareness to. So when you're swiping on Instagram, you're just plugging your awareness into the awareness of others. You're losing your own being. Mm-hmm. and becoming becoming that uh, girl that's exercising and doing squats in the in the gym followed by that cat that is jumping up and down followed by that person right you're just plugging your awareness into nothingness you're losing your own essence and becoming moment after moment after moment of your life you're becoming those other awareness uh, uh, you know streams and and the the interesting part again an old man will tell you is that somehow life passes very quickly when you're not in your own awareness right so i can guarantee you if you spent two hours swiping on instagram that it didn't feel like two hours it didn't feel like anything at all as a matter of fact because the only moments you feel alive are the moments where you are aware of you and your own memory and your own environment and your own interactions and your own connections, these are the moments where you actually feel you yourself alive, your, your own life is only happening during those moments. And I, and I think most, most people will acknowledge that during the lockdown in 2020, the year passed a lot quicker than most years, right? Why? Because for some of us, I mean, to me, it was the slowest year Ever okay? I think I lived like four years in 2020, four years of believe it or not, and I know people will think this is incredibly strange. I I had so much presence, so much joy hmm, of actually having the chance to plugging out of that madness hmm, and sitting with me, sitting with me, listening to me, feeling me, connecting with me, listening to others deliberately calling my mother, calling my best friend, hmm? connecting deeply. hmm? And those, they pass slowly. You feel them. You remember them. I have so many memories of that year, of people I spoke to, talks I have given, uh, books I've written. I've written a book and a half in that year, right? And and there is so much joy in those those things. Now, to become aware is actually really interesting. It is basically an act that is always on we only cover it with distractions hmm? so all you need to do to become aware is to remove the distractions and i uh, you know when i wrote soul for happy i spoke about how to remove the distractions uh, uh, to to be aware of the world around you hmm? and it's an exercise it's an exercise we can do right now eh? if you if you simply ask yourself to look for the color white in the place you are you're sitting in you are now in an act of active awareness, right? You will look around, you you will see a, a white towel or a white candle or a white wall or whatever, and suddenly you're no longer in that empty space of white noise in your head. You're in present awareness. It's really that simple. Hmm? But I will tell you my, my current work on internal awareness, to become aware of your own self, is to remove the conditioning, okay? And that is such a joyful exercise. It's really one of my favorite times. Now, I'll give you an example. I am I'm a Middle Eastern man, uh, born and, and raised in the Middle East. I'm a Muslim by background. And so much conditioning happens from those three words, Middle Eastern, man, Muslim, okay? By the way, some of it is amazing. Some of being a Middle Eastern man and Muslim is
2: wonderful.
1: Hmm? But some of it is absolute crap. Like, it's a total, total lack of awareness, right? And I I say this proudly now because I've worked through it. My image of women conditioned by being a Middle Eastern man was so off the mark, okay? Until my my mid-30s, I viewed women as the Middle Eastern traditional tribal culture that comes from 2,000 years ago propagated and stayed with us, hmm? The man is supposed to be the provider. The man is supposed to be the, you know, accordingly, the, you know, the boss and that. that, that. Crap, right? Absolute crap. And, and the beauty of awareness is, can I sit with myself and ask myself this? That last thought that came in my brain, hmm, is it my thought or is it the thought of my mother or is it the thought of my teacher? Or is the thought of the of social media, or is the thought of of CNN, or is this, is it the thought of some uh, uh, religious leader that was born fourteen hundred years ago? Where did this thought come from? Okay, and if I can actually sit with that thought alone, would I state it the same way, or would I say women are the most amazing being on the planet? Right? Would I would I start to see it that way if I actually started to look at the incredible knowledge that now I have about intuition, which is a feminine characteristic, about empathy, which is a feminine characteristic, about nurturing and giving life, which is a feminine characteristic, about so many things that that thought leader that was sitting in the desert 1,400 years ago didn't have the chance to think about, but yet told me, okay, this is the way men and women are going to deal with each other. Absolute crap. Right now, now can we can we sit in that moment of awareness and take one thought? What whichever thought, by the way, whichever thought that comes to your brain first? Hmm? Can we take that one thought and say, hmm, I'm going to debate that for a minute. Is this my thought or is it my mother's thought? Okay. How do I believe about this? So I actually, one of my favorite exercises, of course, I recommend for everyone meditation, by the way, especially young generation, because in, when we're young, we, ha- we suffer from something that's called hypofrontality. Meditation is literally the exercise that grows the muscle of concentration in your brain. So I, I recommend that. But I also recommend a, a, an exercise that I do very frequently, three to four times a week, that I call Meet Becky. Okay? And meeting Becky is to actually become aware of the stuff that Becky is talking about. Okay, To so sit in silence and not try to silence my brain but actually try to take notes of what my brain is going through and then take some of those thoughts and analyze them and say, wow, where did that come from? Right. You know, success is more important than happiness. Where did that come from? I mean, if I was successful and miserable, would I be happy with that? Would would that be the life I want for myself? Right. And so on. So so that kind of awareness, I promise you, is the awareness that changes everything. It's the awareness of the world around you and the awareness of the world inside.
0: So then I'm gonna give you a really simple example for a young teenager who says, I've got a physics test tomorrow, I've got a math test tomorrow, I'm gonna bomb that test. There's just no point. I, I know I'm so dumb. Now, where did that thought come from? And should that child then go into school the next day, bomb it to whatever standard he thinks he's bombing it? How does that affect his future scenarios of being able to take exams? What do you do with Becky at that point to allow yourself to question those thoughts and the awareness of how do i take an exam why am i not learning about that why am i worried about physics
1: well well, i i have a very important philosophy about exams that was taught to me by by my son but let me answer this second so first first let's say how do i deal with the thought from my brain about an exam okay let's take the same flow chart huh Is there any way I can remove the exam or the idea of exams in my life? No, I'm going to have to take exams for a while. It's a fact. I hate them or I like them. It doesn't matter. It's a a fact that I have to deal with. Okay. So I might as well deal with it the easiest and swiftest and and best way I can. Hmm? What is the best way you can? It's actually very straightforward. Every minute you put in studying before the exam is going to make the exam a little less likely to hurt you. Okay. It's going to make the exam easier. And it's going to make your chances of succeeding the exam higher. And accordingly, it's going to make your chances of having to sit again for the exam lower. It's as simple as that. It might not get you to an A every minute, but every minute gets you incrementally closer to an easier life. It's It's as simple as that. And if I have eight hours between now and the exam, and my capability as a human being is I can concentrate for two of those eight hours, you might as well start going. Okay. You might as well start putting the two hours in there. You hate it or like it is, irre- is irrelevant. It's not going to go away until you put those two hours in. So you might as well put the two hours now so that we get done. with it. That's, this is my simple approach to life. By the way, it applies to everything from how my startup had to go through a tough time during COVID-19 all the way to how am I going to make another coffee because the first coffee wasn't great. OK, it's it's very straightforward. It's my simple approach to life. Look, I'm going to need another coffee today so I can sit here and complain about this bad one or I can accept it or I can just say to myself, it's going to be six more minutes and I'm going to make an amazing coffee. Now, my, my son, on the other hand, and this is really my talk to parents now to not to teenagers. My son taught me an incredible lesson. Hmm? When I basically, I told you, he was, he was very smart, Habibi Ali. was amazing. And he was very good in mathematics, specifically, uh, because his dad and his grandfather are mathematicians by nature. And, you know, there was one day when Ali came back from school with a B plus in math. Okay. And I said, Ali, why? Why would you score a B plus? And he says, why not? And I said, what an answer. Like, what, what do you mean, why not? You're, you're really good at math. Okay. and He says, okay, Papa. I am really good at math. Do you know that? And I said, yes. And I said, so you should score a B plus. And he said, why? And I was like now confused. Okay. And then so he helped me out by saying, okay, Papa, which would you prefer? For me to be good at math and score a B plus or for me to be horrible at math, but find a way to score an A. And of course, I sat stunned for a while. Okay. And I said, what do I actually want? I want my son to learn math, right? That is what I want. I want him to be good at math. The conditioning of school tells us, and to prove that you're good at math, you have to go to an exam, and that exam you have to score, and, 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 and. So I ask parents to remember, hmm? we are all being conditioned by a capitalist system that puts us in certain things that make us forget what really matters. And what really matters is you want your kids to be smart. You want them to engage fully in things that they love. And the exam, we want them to pass too. But that's secondary to learning. Learning is the number one priority. And Ali was simply telling me, uh, when I answered, of course, and I said, no, I want you to be good at math. He said, I am good at math. And you know that, okay? So don't be upset about an exam that may have not matched my appetite to soul.
2: Okay.
1: And, wow. and that is really profound. If you ask me, my whole life was redefined. Okay. Now I'm, not, I'm, I'm guessing most of our parents listening to this will go like, no, I don't care. I just want them to get done with school. Remember, it's always about ending. Okay. You want them to get done with school, but you also want them to be amazing at the things that they love. This is what it's all about. And if your parents are not allowing you to do this, then I ask you as a teenager or as, as a student, whatever age you are, or as a worker in the workplace to be amazing at the things that you love and just to pass through the others. Pass through the others because that's the hygiene of life. You have to get done with those things. There is no point resisting a system that is in place, okay, unless it's unjust. Hmm? But what matters to you is find what you like, Find through awareness, find what you stand for and make it your life success.
0: Wow! And you know, I do have to say, I said it in the introduction, and I'll say it again. But Ali was and is wiser than most young people ever are, and I think that is taken me to my core. Really, that that understanding of his relationship with what do you need me to get out of this?
1: He, he he was he was amazing in that he questioned everything. Okay, and he questioned with no arrogance, no judgment. Okay, he simply questions and said okay, look, the world is telling me I need to be a certain way. Is that the right way? If it is, I will do it. But if it isn't, maybe there is a better way. And I think that taught me so much. And I would hope for every young man and woman to learn that, to learn that I will tell you openly, you may have heard me say interesting things now, but I also say horrible, stupid things. Okay. And if I do that, reject them, reject them, be your own person. Be your own judge of what matters.
0: Wow. I, I really could literally talk to you forever and ever and ever. And I, I just wanted to sort of wrap our conversation up because I know you have so many other things to do in your day. But in the Elevate Vision, the work that I'm doing in empowering our young people with the soft skills that I believe they need to be happy, which in my view, or with the program that I developed, are confidence, resilience, empathy, emotional intelligence, and kindness, You have a daughter yourself, Uh, I have a teen girl, and although sometimes my daughter looks at me like I'm speaking a foreign language when I bring her these topics, I think your book has the tremendous helpful messages and I wonder what else we can do to keep our children on the right track to highlight these particular superpowers that I want them to learn. In your view, are there any closing thoughts or messages that we can give to parents and teachers of girls, particularly in in the impressionable age of their teen years, on how we can work with your equation into their lives? And on a regular basis, make it a practical way to look. You know, a comparison is the thief of joy. I see it all the time. Self-doubt is prevalent throughout my young people even with me as an adult at my age i find myself telling my becky why are you saying this to me you know all the time so what can we do with these young girls in your view
1: two things and we could talk for hours about this but the top two things for me are very straightforward stop thinking of them of them as children they're no longer children as teenagers we were we yeah we were born as infants and in the in the in the you know, uh, in the mammal category of beings or bi- of biological beings, we need to care for our infants, otherwise, they will perish, right? But, you know, be- beyond that, they really don't need our care as much as we think we do. Of course, in the modern world, because we've delayed the cycle of us getting into the world so much, yes, they need our care, they need our support, they need our advice. But that role of a parent that we keep playing throughout their life, my kids have taught me so much. My kids are so much wiser than I am. They are connected to their uh, 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 instinctive nature that I had disconnected from when I went into the modern world. Listen to them. Treat them like humans, okay? Understand, by the way, that when you were a teenager, you had the exact same challenges. You wanted to be independent. You didn't want to be told what to do. You didn't want to be uh, uh, um, uh, controlled uh, the way you're trying to control your kids. Listen to them and treat them as adults. Okay? One of the things that completely made a massive difference for me and my children is that I used to sit next to Ali at age two and speak to him as an adult okay ask him questions and i promise you when he was 4 he would drop nuggets of wisdom nuggets because not because ani is wiser than average because nature builds us with observations that kids can see that adults don't okay and and so so my number one ask in life is stop playing the role of a father or the role of a mother it's over Okay, biologically, biologically, when, you know, 100 to 200 years ago, kids are no longer kids when they became teenagers, right? They got married. They became parents themselves. They became warriors that went into war. They became scientists when they were 14 in the old 200 years ago. Now we're restraining them and telling them, no, you do what I tell you to do. How unfair is that? Your role as a parent, and I would say this bluntly, hmm? my amazing ex-wife, which I believe is one of the wisest women on earth, hmm? used to tell me, I am not their parents, okay? They are not my children. I am there to help them find their path, not do, not live my path. I, I'm not there to make them live my life. I'm there to help them find their life. And what's the way to do that? Listen to them. Understand what they're going through. Okay, understand that you have no clue. That if you had a thousand uh, friends on Instagram, you would be going through the same crap they're going through. It's as simple as that. Number one. Okay, and number two is remember the tip I told you. Success in raising your children is not about making them sus- successful. It's about making them successful and happy. Successful and happy. Give them confidence. Listen to their to their problems. Give them empathy. Uh, Teach them empathy. Teach them all of those things that make them happy. At the same time, that make uh, that it makes them successful. And when you get those two right, hmm, and listen to them, and treat them like humans, not like kids, you'll get it. It's it's really not that complicated. And yes, there will be moments that they will you know rebel against you, and there will be moments where they will dislike you, and that's fair, absolutely fair, no problem at all. Your role is to continue to be there to help them find their own path. And if you do, you will have raised some amazing, amazing humans that will change our world, not only your world, but our world, because they will know in themselves whats what they're good at and they will live it fully and they will change our world as a result.
0: Hear, hear to that. My goodness, I think I'll put that part of this interview on repeat in my house, because that is really something that I think parents often get bogged down with their day to day and they forget what's really important. And the bigger picture is really what's important. I think you're absolutely right about that. It's been absolutely extraordinary to be able to have this conversation. Your mission to make 1 billion people happy is well and truly an inspiring one, Mo. I hope listeners will find some great comfort and take away your wise suggestions to ensure we and our kids all lead a happy life and build a happier world for future generations to come. I thank you a million times over for being here with me today. I'm so deeply grateful.
1: I am so grateful for the opportunity. I'm always available, by the way, if you want to find me on uh, social media and uh, connect more, ask me a question. This is how you and I met. So I answer many of the questions I get as I can. Uh, Also, I would probably say, give yourself a chance and listen to my podcast. I think you would enjoy uh, some of the wisdom of my best, uh, wisest friends. Uh, And overall, invest in your happiness. I think that would be, Uh, my ask of everyone who listened to us today. Unless you invest in it, it's not just going to pop up on its
0: own. No, it's not. And I can absolutely attest to that. I have listened to you. I have followed your social media accounts, but I've also listened to your podcast and they offer so much golden knowledge in there, honestly. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for the time. Thank you.
0: Such tremendously pertinent and motivational guidance from the lovely and inspiring Mo Gaudat. I'm deeply moved to have had this conversation as if it wasn't crystal clear enough earlier, but I am really such a huge fan that having him on the podcast was such a joy. And I'm grateful to have been able to share the experience with all of you listeners. I know we'll all be eagerly awaiting his new books. You've had the exclusive here on the Elevate podcast. There will be a Soul for Happy Teens coming out soon, which I know we will eagerly await. In the meantime, links to his current book and podcast are in the show notes for your reference. Thanks as always for being here and being part of our conversation.